Last year we we were in uh, Genesis, and uh, we're going to be there again. It might take me 15 years to get to it. <laughs> uh, maybe even longer. Uh, a couple of so we're back. A year ago we were talking about Abram. And we're going to be right back with Abram. And you know this guy, his name gets changed Abraham. His life and his walk with God. You could spend years studying and find it to be amazingly instructive for us, especially as we all begin a new year. So as this patriarch's journey of faith, really, I don't know if you realize, it was some 3,500 years ago, as it unfolds in the book of Genesis, we really look at it, you discover some significant gems of truth that I believe God has recorded for us to help guide us and teach us as we walk with our God. Some 400 years, I don't know if you have put a little bit of timetable to it, but some 400 years after the flood waters receded and Noah stepped out of the ark to see God in Genesis 12, he graciously summons this this man, Abram, Mesopotamia, and we see that there was this simple yet decisive decision on the part of Abram to heed that summons to place his personal faith in the living God's eternal plan. There was so much that was unknown to Abram, but he dared to believe God. Really, a good question for us as we start this year. Do we, will we dare to believe God? Really, on this, the fifth day of 2020, really this very moment, we're being asked to do just that. Have we dared to respond to God's summons on our life? To believe God, to place our faith in God's plan and will for our lives. Have we decided, made a decisive decision to become citizens of God's kingdom? A Christian, decisively deciding that we will trust and follow Jesus Christ. Really the honest answer, and only you can answer that question for yourself, the answer to those questions is going to reveal, one, whether you are a child of God, and really, therefore, what your eternal destiny is, and two, whether you are master of your life, or whether God is, especially as you begin a new year. Abram's recorded journey with God teaches us many things, but it also teaches us that for those of us who do heed the call of God, that we are prone to wander. Maybe you already know that. Maybe in 2019 there was some wandering going on. We're prone to wander from God's call upon our life, especially in the face of crisis. Seems to be a common occurrence. Abram, along with his sweetheart Sarah, you know the story, they had their share of wanderings and failings. We've only been 
you know, you're only into Abram and Sarah's life a couple of chapters, and there are already a few doozies, especially in chapter 12, as Abram does the unthinkable. In Egypt, you probably know the story. I'll encourage you to read it. We're not going to rehash that. We, like Abram, often find ourselves at times striking out on our own. That's what happened in Egypt. In our own land, you might say, of Egypt, forgetting we ignore all that's been promised us from time to time. Determined, isn't that the way it is? We determine in our own wisdom and our own strength to fix our lives, and we do it independent of the very one who alone can do the fixing. Now, such a tendency as scripture and history, and I'm sure experience, at least is true for me, has proven going it alone just messes up life. It complicates, often destroys relationships. It grieves the heart of God. It, it breaks fellowship with Him. And in the end, it simply is cheating us of the very life that He has for us, that abundant life that that he promised he would bring us through Christ. That's really the challenge for us all, and it was a challenge for Abram and Sarai. In this new year, is a consistent daily focus, and I hope you have made this resolution, you might say, to increasingly focus and take to heart the promises that God has made us. His children, as recorded in the inspired scriptures. Well, practically speaking, that means we have to spend more time in his word. We can't know what God has promised us unless we read where it is he has recorded those promises. And that is in the scriptures. And so, the journey of Abram's faith continues to unfold before us as you read in Genesis. For as Abram wanders far from his God in chapter 12... We see in Genesis 13 that like the prodigal son, he returns to his God. He comes home. He chooses to live a life of trust and obedience to the call in his life. We read in verses 1 through 4, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with them into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev, as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now we're all prone to wander, but wise is the Christian, would you not agree? Wise is the Christian who learns to quickly and honestly, with humility, yield to his or her conviction that they are under. And really it's humility that I'm personally convinced that Abram leaves Egypt with, if you know the story. It's a virtue God requires of each who would choose to approach him. Can't do it. Can't come even into the presence of God without humility. Humility in part means we face and own up to our sin. There's a, a there. There is a, a need to acknowledge our rebellious tendency to go it alone. 
Now, God, it seems, compels Abram to do just that. So Abram, he leaves Egypt. We're just doing a little refreshing here. He leaves Egypt. He travels back into the land of promise. He pitches his tent in the north between two towns, as the text says, Bethel and I, where he once again, as the, as the scripture says, calls on the name of the Lord. That is, he returns to his God with confession on his lips, seeking full restoration of fellowship with his Lord. And once again, affirms and reaffirms that he will live in obedience to the call of God. Now, somebody once said, experience is a wonderful thing. It enables you to recognize a mistake when you make it again. Now, I'm certain that Abram did not consider his experience in Egypt as anything close to wonderful. If you remember, he betrayed his wife. I am certain that at Bethel, as he built another altar to the Lord, he made a determination to never repeat his mistakes again. But if you know anything about Abram, he did so some 20 years later. Not in Egypt before a pharaoh, but in Palestine before a Philistine king named Abimelech in Genesis 20. And even worse, very sadly, his son Isaac, some 90 years later, in Genesis 26, committed the same horrific deception and betrayal. Now, why do I share that? Because there's many things we can learn from the patriarchs of the Old Testament. One is that they were normal. All right? They wandered. But they also remind us that no matter who we are, how long we've walked with the Lord or have been used mightily for Him, even overcoming great sin, we till the day our Lord takes us takes home must with humility constantly guard our hearts. We must be on our guard. For we are all, without exception, vulnerable to the pull of our sin nature. It also reminds us that sin that is left unchecked in one generation is sure to pass to the next and the next. Will you, in 2020, make that determination in your, in your family, in your generation, that it will stop? It will go no further. That would be a great resolution. But at this point in the journey with hard lessons learned, Abram renews and reaffirms his faith in the living God. This is important. Notice with me, though, how quickly, which is usually how it plays out, his faith, this resolution, is immediately put to the test. So we're in Genesis 13, verses 5 through 18, the rest of the chapter. And Lot who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. 
At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and your herdsmen. For we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will take I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered and everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zohar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked. They were great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, that there he dwelt or built an altar to the Lord. So how do you resolve conflict? If you were to answer that, you might say, ah, not too well. <laughs> uh, well, the truth is, I probably would say the same thing. We've often heard it said that in life there are a few things that we can count, right? Death and taxes. But I would suggest that maybe we add conflict, right? 2020 is likely to bring conflict in your life. And mine, conflict at home, conflict with mom or dad, brother or sister, husband or wife, on the job, with our friends, our neighbors, in our schools, in churches, communities, states, even nations, which we see today. Conflict is a part of the real world that we live in. Conflict has existed since the garden. When our first parents rebelled against God. Now without question on his part, God through his son has succeeded in providing a resolution to man's conflict. But of course man in all his attempts, as history proves, really hasn't fared so well. I don't know about your life as you've grown up, but... I, for one, grew up with a lot of conflict. My idea of conflict resolution was simply to figure out a way to win. Some of the conflict was in my home, but most of it resided in my relationships at school, especially in junior high and high school. I grew up in Southern California, and there was this built-in conflict between the Chicano games and the surfers. Because I was, believe it or not, some of you might not believe this, because I was a 
a very long-haired, blue-eyed kid who enjoyed the Southern California beach scene. Yeah, James, I actually surfed. Not very well, but I surfed. Because of that, I inherited, it's a long story, but I inherited some of this conflict. I was jumped uh, several times and I found myself in the middle of a few of the campus riots that actually were, believe it or not, riots in a Chino High School. Uh, I didn't seem, at least I don't remember, uh, asking for the conflict. It, as I remember, it just kind of came to me. You know, but I have to admit I was the typical cool, cocky, know-it-all, um, chip-on-your-shoulder type teenager. Oh, yeah, that, that was me. I could have used some skills in conflict resolution. Or at the very least, I uh, should have learned how to fight smarter. Uh, like a funny story of a Korean boy. And this story was once uh, shared by a pastor in Ray Stedman. He told this story, this funny story of some fellows who were stationed in Korea during the Korean War. And while there, they, they evidently hired this, this local lad to cook and clean for them. Well, being a bunch of jokesters and pranksters, these guys soon began to take advantage of the boy's seemingly naivete. He was in their minds, very naive. They'd smear Vaseline on the stove handles. They'd hang little water buckets over the door. Uh, they'd even nail his shoes to the floor during the night. Day after day, they said this little fellow, though, took the brunt of the practical jokes without saying anything. No blame, no self-pity, no temper tantrums. He never complained. Fine. I really bothered the guys, and they, they felt so guilty about what they were doing over time. They sat down with the young Korean and said, Look, we know that these pranks aren't funny anymore, so we're really, really sorry. We're never going to take advantage of you again. Well, evidently it seemed too good to be true to the young lad, and he says in his broken English, no more sticky on the stove? And they said, no. No more water on the door? No. No more nail shoes to floor? Nope, never again, they said. Okay, the boy said with a smile, no more spit and soup. <laughs> well, we can all use some help in conflict resolution. Instinctively, we know, do you not, if you've Walk with the Lord any length of time. You know God has called you to peace. But the truth is, very few of us know how to practically find it. Well, let's first be reminded as we begin this new year, genuine peace begins when we first resolve our conflict with God. That's the gospel. And this can only happen through Jesus. Through Christ, we can experience peace with God. And so an appropriate question is, are you at peace with God? You can be, if you place your trust in Jesus. 
Christ has broken down the wall of conflict between God and us. Christ, God the Son, is God the Father's resolution to the problem of our broken relationship with Him. When we find peace with God through Jesus, we then can really begin to learn and experience genuine peace with each other. In our marriages, in our families, our communities, among nations, and the world. Jesus is the answer. And the truth is, as the scriptures clearly teach, God expects his children to resolve their conflict. Learning to rise above and resolve conflict is, is an integral part of our walk with God. For the Christian, unresolved conflict is often a sign of spiritual immaturity, childishness, and increasing victory over it is a sign of a deepening faith in the Lord. God in his word supplies his creation with, with ample practical principles. You know this if you spend any time in the word on conflict resolution, ways to resolve the conflict that we face day in and day out. If we're willing to incorporate these principles, much of our conflict can be resolved. That's the truth of it. May I suggest Abram and Lot's situation provides us, by way of example, some of these practical principles. Abram and Lot, they find themselves face to face with a choice. Like we will be faced with myriads of choices, if not already in the coming year. Regarding something that they believed was very, very important. What was that? Well, it was their future prosperity. It was their livelihood. You might even say their happiness, their comfort in life, their security, their safety in the days ahead. As the crowded circumstances evidently were threatening such survival and strife, as the text says, begin to appear between these herdsmen, Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen. Why? Well, they no doubt were competing, as you can imagine, for pasture, for feed, and for water. Abram and Lot are, are forced to try to resolve the escalating tension. Choices would have to be considered. Decisions would have to be made. It was obvious to both, though it seems Abram was the first to admit it, there just wasn't enough land to support both of them. It's like going to Costco after the power has gone off and everybody is racing for the water. There wasn't enough to go around. At least in the same neighborhood, you might say. They couldn't run their stock together and survive, using the same watering holes and make it. They would have to separate. They would have to occupy different regions of the land. But how in the world do you decide who gets what and who goes where? Think about that. Now, this is where it gets tricky and really potentially lethal. Now, it is in their respective choices where we find our example and some practical help. Abram in verse 8 is the first to make a move 
in an attempt to head off the escalating strife. He suggests to Lot that something's got to be done. The strife is not good. It's not healthy. It's not profitable. It won't work. Beginning in verse 9, he declares, Lot, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So the question, how did Abram resolve the conflict? This is huge. What choice did he make? Well, very simply, Abram graciously gives Lot the advantage rather than taking it. He yields to Lot the opportunity to choose first the land that he would like to dwell in. Now follow me on this. This is Abram. God has called Abram to occupy the land. Abram at the risk of losing the best land and the best water generously gives rather than grabs. Abram, the man of God who was Lot's elder, leader and uncle who had every divine and cultural right to usurp his position and authority to take the very best for himself, he surrenders that right to Lot. Now actually, we could just basically pack it up this morning and go home in the message right with an all-important truth seen over and over in the scriptures regarding conflict resolution. That is, and you would have to agree, conflict often just dissolves and rarely survives where there is present at least one, let alone two, who seeks to give advantage rather than take it. Think about it. Especially husbands and wives. Think about it. I follow a lot about it. I can't even begin to tell you how much conflict Kim and I would have avoided over the 42 years of marriage. If one of us, let alone both of us, would have sought each other's needs out first before we thought of our own. Sought our own. How much conflict would you avoid? Would you have if one or both in the marriage were totally and completely sold out for the interests of the other? Where in every circumstance we did as the Apostle Paul admonished in Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfishness ambition, or conceit, but in humility, humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, I'm personally convinced that conflict and strife would be virtually eliminated, or at the very least quickly diffused if we practice this more often. I think that would be great for talking about resolution. That would be a, a pretty awesome one to make. For 2020. But the truth is, if you're like me though, 
you're here today knowing, knowing like Abram, it, it's right to do this. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that would work. It would solve much to be gracious, kind, loving, and self-sacrificing. But the problem is we've tried it, but we rarely can keep it up. Because we have this tendency, do we not, to fall back into these same old ruts. Usually it's to protect. We, 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 well, first, we're, we feel threatened, we protect, we defend, and then we try to win. That is, we fall back on taking care of number one at all costs. But the question is, is there an answer to this? How can we be more consistently others-minded? That would be a pretty cool thing. We may not get it every time, but if we could, could consistently improve on it, that would be huge. How was it that Abram was able to do this? Good question in the first one. How could he do this? Well, you say, well, it's obvious. He loved his nephew. Huh. You say, Lot was family, and family does these kind of things. Well, well maybe. I don't know about you, but I know a lot of families where the same blood that flows through their veins is obviously pretty thin. Okay? And it's an all-out war to gain the upper hand to outdo a husband or a wife or a brother or a sister at all costs. It's like the amusing story about a judge in a divorce case who asked the husband, will you tell the court what actually passed between you and your wife during your big argument that caused you to seek this separation? I will, said the husband. It was a rolling pin, it was six plates, and a frying pan. Hey, sometimes families, I mean, there, there's some all-out wars in families. Now, I believe Abram's choice came from something much deeper something stronger than family love. Ask yourselves for a moment, how could Abram give Lot first choice over the land that God had already promised him? How could he do that? What if Lot were to choose the wrong land? Didn't Abram have a responsibility to protect and secure what was given him by divine right? Follow me on this. Wasn't it his responsibility to cling to it at any cost? Fight for it at any cost? How could he just risk losing it all and putting it all on the line in such an irresponsible way as some commentators have, have suggested? One I read was convinced that Abram was simply passively foolhardy. He wasn't thinking straight. He was just a little bit too unconcerned and careless for getting the value of the land that God had promised. I don't buy that at all. What I believe we see here is simply faith at work. It's a faith that is growing in Abram who will become Abraham. It's a faith that he will consistently be, be, be challenged with learning to trust God with something that God has already promised him. Faith is what motivated, at least in this instance, 
motivated Abram to give the advantage to his nephew, faith in the promise of God. You see, I'm convinced he had learned his lesson in Egypt, where he had tried to protect and secure. At least he learned his lesson uh, this time, where he was afraid. He tried to protect and secure the promise of a future on his own. He knew now that what God had promised would come to pass and no amount of fear, worry, deceptive scheming, or greedy manipulation would bring it to pass any quicker or make it any more certain. This is huge, because I believe this is at the root of most of our conflict. We're afraid. Something's at risk. And we're having a hard time believing that it's secure, that God has got it covered. You see, Abram did love his nephew. But in this instance, it was Abram's confidence in God's ability to take care of him that set him free to graciously give rather than grab, which just happened to resolve the conflict, as the text is clear. You see, Abram had nothing to protect. His God would protect it. He had nothing to prove. His God would prove it. Nothing to demand or cling to. His God in his perfect timing would bring it all to pass. Now, Abram, granted, this is new to Abram. He's learning this. This, has, this situation has become an opportunity for him to put into practice, to choose correctly in this instance, to not make the same mistake that he made in Egypt. And that's the nature of faith. We grow. And sometimes we, what is that saying? We're two steps forward, three steps back. Something to that. Two steps. Or three steps forward, two steps back, and we're ahead <laughs> one step, you know? And that's the nature of walking with the Lord. God is constantly perfecting us and putting us in situations where we're, in the best sense, tested. That faith is refined. And here's an instance for Abram, and he does well. It's such faith, it's such confidence, and yeah, I think this is huge, it allowed him to rest in his God, to be sold out for his nephew rather than himself, to look out for Lot's interest before he considered his own, which in turn bit the head right off the strike that was coming to the surface. Such faith resolves strife. And it will do the same for us. I would argue at the heart of much of our personal conflict with ourselves, our spouse, or anyone else, especially our God, is a lack of faith that He's able to secure for us what He has promised us. That, that obviously has everything to do with salvation. Can we trust Him to save us? It requires that kind of faith. Well, walking with the Lord day in and day out requires the same. 
trust and faith. It really does boil down to whether we really believe God can or cannot take care of us and meet our every need. It's that simple. We complicate it sometimes. We somehow become convinced, whether we are willing to admit it or not, or we say it, we actually convince ourselves that He can't take care of us, or He won't. And it's up to us. Again, we don't necessarily verbalize that, but that's the effect of our actions. That's really what we're saying. God, I really don't think you got this one taken care of. I don't think you have my best interests in mind here. I don't think you can handle this one. Let me take the wheel. In fact, that's what we are saying. Amen. Somehow we convince ourselves it's up to us to protect and secure our position. Our rights. This is a huge one. Our image. Our future. Our authority. Our finances. Our reputation. Our happiness. Our success in the coming year. So, when circumstances or people put these at risk, threaten them in some way, there's a conflict, is there not, in the making? Why? Because we, we generally tend to rush to gain advantage. That's my tendency. Out of fear, I rush to protect, to demand, to defend, to secure and usually, along the way, with my words, actions, or attitudes, body language, that's a big one, I end up hurting, wounding, maiming, or crucifying those closest to me, because they just happen to be in the way. And at times, as a result, the conflict that's created takes on battle proportions. You ever, have you ever been in, a, in an argument where he's like, what, did he, what is it that we're even arguing about? Because we're just so worked up. You know? This is amazing how that happens. Where's the victory? Well, the victory is faith. Faith and faith alone is the victory. What, what does that mean? Well, faith that believes that God can take care of my life better than I can. It really does come down to that. Faith that looks not to my own selfish, deceptive, dishonest scheming or greedy manipulation, but to the all-sufficiency of my God. Faith that seeks and finds its security and its confidence, provision and purpose in life, not in my ability, but in the presence and the promise of the Lord God. With such faith, as we enter this new year, we have nothing to protect and prove, provide or demand or cling to at all costs, but only to be set free. Have you ever, have you ever met somebody who has been totally set free to give? And you go, how can they do that? When you meet a Christian like that, it's because they're just so absolutely confident that their God will meet their every need, it just sets them free to share. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Especially as the years go by and they've seen God take care of them. 
It's just, it's, it's pretty awesome. There's some pretty cool stories about throughout, after, in the last couple hundred years. One is the, the story of George Mueller. Find his biography, read it. It will bless you. Again, I believe that Abram is displaying such faith here. Now, it's all going to get put to the test again <laughs> in the years ahead for me, especially when it comes time to trusting God that he's going to provide a son. And he'll go through the whole struggle of trusting God with that. And they don't do so well, as you know the story. But there's another side of this story that flows from Lot's response and the choice of the heart that he made when what he valued most was on the line. Instead of placing his faith in the one true God to protect, preserve, and provide, what does he do? Well, he basically strikes out on his own, much like his uncle and aunt did in Egypt. Whereas Abram displays self-sacrifice, Lot evidently was charmed by the well-watered lowlands and the beautiful fertile valleys and he displays a self-seeking, self-gratifying spirit. And instead of giving advantage, Lot appears to take advantage and run with it. Looking out for number one by choosing the best land for himself. And if you know the story, as the chapters ahead show, this choice would prove to be devastating, for rarely, would you not agree, rarely are things ever as they first appear or seem to promise. The grass is rarely greener on the other side of the fence. We have chickens, many of you know, to help illustrate this, one time, as Tim says, the chickens are for, the hens are for girls. I don't call them girls, but they're chickens. Anyway, we have lots, we, believe it or not, many of you have benefited from our chickens laying eggs. All right, crazy. My wife doesn't even like eggs, but she likes chickens. You know? <laughs> Nuts, I know. But one time, one of the chickens, Michael will recognize this, decided to fly over the fence, get to the green grass. Because they're in a gravel area, get to the green grass in the yard where they're not supposed to go. This chicken was charmed by that. At the end of the day, she tries to fly back. And I wake up the next morning, and there her neck is strung between the slats of two, uh, two fences. She basically hung herself trying to get back to the gravel. You know, great illustration of how we are lured, are we not, by our sinful nature. For Lot, the charm was strong enough that he evidently overlooked the incredible wickedness of Sodom. We see that in verse 13. And the scripture would be fulfilled that there is a way, according to Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way that often seems right to a man, but his end is the way to death. Now this truth sadly unfolds in Lot's life, 
as over time he is fully assimilated into the culture of Sodom and its evil. As verse 12 says, Lot moved his tent as far as Sodom. Then in chapter 14, verse 12, we notice Lot dwelling in Sodom itself. And then in chapter 19, verse 1, we are told Lot over time had come to sit in the very gate of Sodom as one of the business leaders. And you know the rest of the story. In the end, his self-seeking, self-gratifying choice would even destroy his family. The point of this is, Abram and Lot teach us a very, very important lesson, especially as we start the new year. A humble, self-sacrificing spirit that flows from faith. A growing faith and confidence in God for the needs of life will end much of our personal conflict and stress. There's a direct connection bringing unmistakable blessing and peace. But self-seeking, a self-gratifying spirit flowing from a dependence to go it alone depend on ourselves rather than God to protect, preserve, and provide, to tell us what's good or bad, right or wrong. We lean on ourselves to determine what that is. Life will only end in emptiness, self-destruction, let's call it, a, a cheating uh, we're cheated of, of the very best of life that God means for us to taste. Call it the shalom of God. The true peace of God. Many of the battlefields in our homes and marriages, churches, and on the job, community, nation, and our very world spring from such a spirit. We know this to be true. What's the answer to the conflict in the world? We all know instinctively it's Jesus. Faith in Jesus. And that is the answer to our conflict as well at home. So we have a choice, don't we not? Which choice? Will you choose like Abraham, at least in this instance? <laughs> I pray that you do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great examples in your word. They challenge us. <coughs> thank you for revealing to us through Abram's life that we can trust you. I pray that in the days ahead, and especially when we meet up with things that threaten the, the things that we count as, as important. And I pray that we'll be quick to learn. To believe that you to be fully perceived in that moment that, that you can take good care of so we can trust you with what it is we're afraid that we 
our faith in this year. Test it if you must. We know you will. Help us to be found faithful. And we pray that it's uh, maybe at the end of the year, Lord, that we'll be able to look back and rejoice over how far you have brought us. We all pray this in the precious name of Jesus.